Once upon a time, there was a young girl in Mexico named Pepita. And as Christmas arrived, Pepita visited her village church for Christmas services and to leave an offering at the church's nativity scene. The only problem was that she had no offering to offer. She couldn't show up empty-handed, not for an occasion like this, so the best that little Pepita could do was gather whatever weeds she could pull up from the roadside and form them into a crude and rather shabby bouquet. Pepita felt ashamed that she had nothing better to offer, but according to the legend, she went up toward the nativity scene, knelt down to leave her bouquet of weeds, and as she did, those weeds miraculously transformed into bright red flowers, with large pointy petals growing in a shape that vaguely suggested a star. The same flowers that had long been prized as much for their beauty as for their use as medicine and pigmentation. They were once widely used for their sticky white sap known as latex, which was believed to treat fevers and headaches. Others used the leaves to make red or purple dye. And that flower, which had been known by many names because of that legend, would go on to be known as La Flor de Nochebuena, the flower of Christmas Eve. Around this same time, Franciscan monks in a Mexican town began using these flowers in their nativity processions. And for generations, the legend of Pepita and her humble offering of a bouquet of weeds was part of the Christmas celebration for many communities in Mexico. And that's where it all could have stayed. A regional tradition based on a regional legend and involving a flower that grows in that region. But of course it didn't stay there. Those bright red flowers with the pointy leaves are, of course, that ubiquitous flower we now know as a poinsettia. And the story about how it came to America, how it got its name change, and how it came to be as much a part of the Christmas foliage as mistletoe and holly has some strange twists and turns to it. Ones that involve a kidnapping, possibly a murder, international diplomacy, and a good old-fashioned American success story. I'm Brian Earle. This is Christmas Past. This story begins in 1826 and involves that fraternal organization known as the Freemasons. There was a man by the name of William Morgan who in 1826 was sort of kicked out of his Masonic Lodge. That's Mark Schmeller. He's an associate professor of history at Syracuse University. And threatened to write a book revealing their secret rituals and oaths. And he was kidnapped and probably murdered by a, a group of Freemasons here in, here in upstate New York. And they tried to bring the kidnappers to justice, but kind of failed to. In many cases, the, the trials that they held, the juries were stacked with Freemasons uh, who, who you know, let their brothers off. And it sort of evolved into a social movement and eventually a political party that briefly existed in the late 1820s, uh, known as the Anti-Masonic Party. Now, we can think of this part as the prologue to our story. And around the same time that all of this was happening, a man by the name of Joel Roberts Poinsett was named America's ambassador to Mexico by President John Quincy Adams. Poinsett is sort of a um, learned, uh, well-traveled, slave-owning South Carolinian. Uh, and he was involved in democratic politics. And he goes to Mexico uh, really with sort of instructions to promote uh, the American system of Republican government. Poinsett had a long career and a broad education before all of this. His resume reads like one of someone who grew up in a wealthy and privileged family in the 19th century. He studied law, he's referred to as a physician and a diplomat, he was an amateur botanist and spoke several languages. 
he had traveled to Europe and Russia, and he was appointed by President Madison as a consul in general, for which he served as an agent in Chile and Argentina. And in 1820, he was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. And later on, he was Martin Van Buren's Secretary of War, a cabinet position we now know as Secretary of Defense. Poinsett was also a Freemason, so on his mission to Mexico, he started to set up Masonic lodges in Mexico. Now this wasn't anything new. Mexico already had Masonic lodges, but those followed what Freemasons know as the Scottish Rite, while Poinsett's lodges followed what's known as York Rite. So he establishes these Masonic lodges, and they begin to attract Mexicans who have more pro-American point of views, who have a more liberal politically uh, point of views. And this uh, eventually evolves into a political party. Uh, in Mexico, uh, known as the Yorkinos. And this new, more liberally-minded political party didn't sit too well with the Mexican government. Well, as the Yorkinos are gaining strength, the, the government, which is affiliated with the Scottish Rite, a Masonic lodges, essentially tries to outlaw secret societies. Specifically in mind, they, they, they want to get rid of the York Rite lodges uh, and the Yorkinos. Not only that, but Poinsett himself became a target and also a sort of unfortunate poster boy for foreign politicians meddling in domestic affairs. I, I think that, that Poinsett is behind all of this. The Yorkino lodges are really just Yankee lodges. And this, this then gets him embroiled in, in a lot of controversy. Uh, he's attacked uh, in the newspapers and in pamphlets. He starts to defend himself. Mexicans began to use a term, Poinsettismo. Uh, meaning just, you know, sort of officious Yankee meddling. That sort of becomes a, p a popular term. He becomes really identified uh, as the face of sort of Yankee arrogance, Yankee meddling in Mexican domestic politics. So some ironies uh, to this is that Poinsett had a very positive attitude towards Mexico. He wrote, a, a, you know, a very generous book uh, about Mexico. He was considered sort of to be the leading American authority on Mexico, but he becomes reviled in Mexico. Luckily for Poinsett, and for us, there would be something else named after him. And that takes us back to the legend of Pepita and her bouquet of weeds that miraculously transformed into those bright red flowers. Which, by Poinsett's time, were being used in nativity displays. He's very impressed by this, and he sends it back to South Carolina. And then this catches on, it, it becomes very popular at flower shows. And in 1836, a Scottish botanist named Robert Graham labeled the flower a poinsettia, and the name stuck. Had it not been for Poinsett's mission to Mexico and his interest in botany, the poinsettia may never have enjoyed the wide popularity at Christmas it does today. But that ubiquity we see nowadays, with poinsettias available at every nursery, every flower shop, every grocery store, and even in many drugstores, gas stations, and elsewhere, could only be possible with cultivation on a massive scale. And for that, we can thank a botanist named Paul Ecke. In the early 20th century, Ecke started his poinsettia empire in Southern California, at one point producing 90% of all the world's poinsettias. In one of his early innovations, was to sell the poinsettia as a potted plant rather than as a floral bouquet, as they had normally been sold up till then. You see, they didn't ship well or last long in general that way. Additionally, he licensed technology that allowed him to graft different poinsettia plants together to create a perfect breed for appearance and endurance. Eki's operation is still in existence today, though the family sold the company in 2012. 
Today, poinsettias account for nearly a quarter of all potted plants sold in America. And you don't have to worry about their safety as many people once did. Claims that the plant is toxic to humans are still floating around, but they were disproven long ago. So they're safe to have around the house. And unlike mistletoe and holly and Christmas trees, which are often discarded right after Christmas, poinsettias can be maintained long-term, making them a perfect way to keep the Christmas spirit alive all throughout the year. If you've been following the season so far, you know that the Christmas memories are going to work just a bit differently. That's because I'm recording most of these episodes in the summer when it's still just a bit too early to ask you to send them. And I'm doing that because come November, we'll be welcoming a new member to the Christmas Past family and to the household here at Christmas Past headquarters. So in many of these episodes, like this one, the Christmas memories you'll hear will be from yours truly. But I want you to hear me loud and clear, I still want to include your Christmas memories this season. There's still time to send them, and there's still a place to include them in the episodes that will arrive closer to Christmas Day. So as always, the thing to do is record a voice memo into your phone and send it to christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com. Keep it reasonably short, clean and family friendly, and be sure to say your name and where you're from. Now in the 1980s, there was one voice that rose above all the others on the radio. One consummate entertainer who sang and danced and moonwalked his way into the American culture like few had done before or since. And I idolized Michael Jackson. I kept a scrapbook of Michael Jackson memorabilia. Michael Jackson's stickers, trading cards, a small set of posters that came stapled into the back of a magazine, newspaper and magazine clippings of stories about Michael Jackson. You see, Michael Jackson's fandom to an 80s kid was never just about playing Thriller endlessly on repeat, though of course I did that too. It was about moonwalk battles on the playground. It was about thinking Michael Jackson and acting Michael Jackson. That's why I glued sequins onto a white cotton glove so that I could have a glittering glove just like my idol. I had a Michael Jackson doll complete with microphone and glittering socks. I even owned a recording of Michael Jackson narrating the story of E.T., the extraterrestrial. The only thing I was missing was a red leather jacket with endless decorative zippers and gold mesh on the shoulders, just like Michael wore in the music video for his hit song, Beat It. That is, until Christmas of 1983. There's a Christmas photo of me from that year, now tucked away in an album at my mom's house. It's of me holding up my Michael Jackson jacket in excitement and triumph after tearing away the wrapping paper on Christmas morning. It was among the most memorable gifts I'd ever received. I wore it around the house, to school, around the neighborhood. I wore it constantly and proudly without a care in the world about ever taking it off or matching it with whatever else I was wearing. I probably even slept in it more than once. That jacket, along with the doll and the scrapbook, are still with me, tucked away in a footlocker that I've kept all my life as a sort of treasure chest of memories from my childhood and, of course, in some cases, memories of Christmas past. Christmas Past is produced in wonderful Willow Glen by yours truly, Brian Earle. Thanks so much to Mark Schmeller, and thank you for listening and being part of the Christmas Past family. Hey, let's grow that family by spreading Christmas cheer far and wide. Telling a friend about this show or leaving a review on Apple Podcasts are quick and easy ways to show your support. They don't cost a thing, and they really do make a difference. And if you leave a review, I'll send you a Christmas Past sticker and a handwritten Christmas card to say thanks. 
reach out for details. You can drop me a line anytime at christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com or connect on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And join the private Christmas Past Facebook group if you haven't yet for a year-round Christmas celebration. And visit christmaspast.media for additional Christmas fun like articles, quizzes, infographics, and more. And until we meet again, stay safe and healthy, look out for one another, and may your days be merry and bright.